Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. a sermon especially for the West End or especially for the afternoon services this afternoon we'll be back next week in our sermon series new sermon series which I'm very very excited about and is huge in terms of the life of us as a church but more to be said about that next week for this week uh, I want to look at uh, the process of how God will sometimes put ideas and even dreams in our hearts on the process of how they can become a reality. I don't know how many of you have watched Hotel Rwanda, uh, co-star Sophie Okonedo, but she tells an amazing story um, that shortly after the film had been released, she is at Kenwood House, which is a small museum on Hampstead Heath. She said, she wrote of this day later, she was not dressed for a life-changing experience. She's there with her mum, Uh, Sophie's got old tracksuit bottoms and a top on. Her phone goes and she has trouble making out what her agent is saying because her agent is choking with excitement. Her agent is saying, Sophie, you have been nominated for an Oscar. When Sophie finally works out what her agent is saying, she sort of turns to her mum, tells her mum, and they both go wild together. At which point the security guards, all being very demure, this is a British museum and it's on Hampstead Heath, say you can't make that sort of noise round here. As the security guards lead them both out, Sophie's mum shouts out to anyone who will listen, I don't care, my daughter has just been nominated for an Oscar. And everybody else suitably applauds as they leave the museum. And when I first heard that story, I thought that is not just something that happens when you get nominated for an Oscar, but that actually the Bible is full of examples of that sort of thing happening. Long periods of of preparation and then moments where everything changes. And some of the, uh, often in the scriptures you read, um, you read terms like so-and-so was lifted up or exalted uh, or to, to use a more colloquial term, maybe, maybe promoted. And these are times where God starts to fulfill dreams that have been harbored in people's hearts. And I want to look at this process this afternoon from the story of Joseph. The whole story with Joseph, and we clearly have not got time to read the whole thing, is written in such a way, Joseph, as a teenager, has these two dreams. And in both these dreams, his brothers and then his brothers and his parents are going to bow down before him and if you read this story for the first time it's deliberately written in such a way that if you are the reader you're thinking is there any chance that these dreams of Joseph's are ever going to come true and as the story goes on as the reader you're sort of thinking it is becoming less and less likely that that is ever going to happen his brothers hate him They sell him into slavery. He's now in Egypt, in Potiphar's house. He does well there. He's a man with integrity. He works hard. But then Potiphar's wife accuses him of attempted rape. She'd been actually making advances to him. He'd spurned them. So she made up this story. And as one of our poets said, 
probably not thinking of Potiphar's wife, but he says, hell hath no fury like a love that's been scorned. And that was exactly how Potiphar's wife reacted. And she blamed Joseph. Joseph went to prison. And Joseph is languishing in prison when we pick up this story. And we're thinking there is no way that his parents, his brothers, or anyone else is ever going to bow down to him. He's actually been in prison by the time that we're reading, prison and slavery for 13 years. Then one day, Pharaoh has a dream and nobody can interpret it. And this was in a day and an age where people listened to dreams much more than they probably do typically today. One of the dreams was of seven fat cows coming out of a river, out of the river Nile, and then seven thin gaunt cows following them, and the gaunt cows eat the fat cows. The dream then changes to seven uh, plump, full heads of corn, and they're then devoured by seven scrawny, uh, sort of bad, you know, not going to give any health or any food type heads of corn. And Pharaoh's entirely perplexed. He doesn't know where to turn to get the meaning of these dreams, and then somebody says, oh, there's a guy. There's a guy in prison, he interpreted my dream once. You should get him out. So you imagine, Joseph's just been in prison for years and years and years, and suddenly there's a knock at the door. Doors opened. Joseph, get shaved, get changed, get showered. You are going to see Pharaoh this afternoon. Well, that is exactly what happens. He stands in front of Pharaoh. He says, well, I can't interpret your dreams, but the God I follow think, uh, can, and here's what they mean. He said, it's not about cows or heads of corn. It's actually about famine. You're going to have seven years of plenty, the seven fat cows and the fat heads of corn, and it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And the famine is going to devour all the goodness in the land, and he then throws this bit in for free. He says, here's what I would do, Pharaoh, if I were you. What you need is you need to appoint somebody who will get everybody to save a fifth of their crops every year for the first seven years so that when the famine comes, you've got plenty to draw on. Pharaoh looks around and he's thinking, who could possibly do that for me? And that is where we pick up the story in verse 38 of Genesis 41. Text is going to come up behind me and it goes as follows. So Pharaoh asked all his courtiers, can we find anyone like this man to do the job? One in whom is the Spirit of God. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Wow, what a life-changing day. In prison, to being told, essentially, you are second in the nation and you are now to administer these seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. What can we learn from this story in terms of the way that dreams that are put in our heart might become reality? The first thing I want to suggest is this, that as we learn to follow God, as we learn to pray, as we learn to hear him, it's important that we listen, that we listen to the passions, longings, and dreams that are lodged within us. The Latin for calling is actually vacation. 
or vacare, which has the meaning of inner voice. And Luther would describe this as our inner longing or a pull to something from God. Now, when I talk about dreams, I'm not suggesting the dream that you will be the next Manchester United forward or the next gold winner at the next Olympics. That's not the sort of dream I'm talking about. The sort of dream I'm talking about, in a sense, is an even deeper sort of dream. It's a pulling or longing about your future, which you find is pressed into your heart as you pray, as you read, as you consider the scriptures, and as you keep your heart open to God. There's always an element of service within it and in a way of bringing glory to God as well. And these promises may be to do with others. It might be that others find the Jesus that you have found and all the fullness of life that he offers. It may be about a contribution within the church. When I had a life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit in my late, late teens, I suddenly knew what I wanted to do. I don't know how and I don't know when, but I just knew I wanted to serve God's people. Something had been put within my heart. It may not be something within the church. It may be something for out there in the city or in the nations of the world. God knows just how much there is to do. How many different aspects of service and using the gifts and the passions and the abilities that you have. And I'm looking out on a really diverse crowd of men and women with all sorts of different gifts. Some of you would consider yourselves academics. Some of you would run from that sort of title. Some of you would consider yourselves creatives. Others of you would say, I haven't got a creative bone in my body. Some of you want to stand at the front and lead a charge. Others of you really like being just behind the person leading the charge. Others of you like being way back there it doesn't really matter because he's wired us and he's made us and he's shaped us all differently so this isn't a question of all being the next whoever it's actually all becoming the person God has made you to be and one of the ways that he guides and leads and shapes us in this is by the dreams that he gives us and that he puts in our hearts The second thing that comes out of this story, I think, is that dreams, the, the things that get put in our hearts tend to be followed by long periods of preparation before then coming about quickly. A dream, a long period of preparation, then a quick happening. Joseph spent 13 years in captivity. It means that he got out of bed on 4,700 mornings with no sign of change in the situation and no sign of the fulfillment of the promises that God had given him. When he got up on this morning, his day promised to look like it, just like any other. He didn't get up, I don't think, every day thinking, wow, maybe this is the day when those dreams I had as a teenager will come about. No, I think the monotony of everyday life had stolen that sort of expectation. Nevertheless, the day came. Joseph got up that morning in a rat-infested prison when he had to roll up his mat, his sleeping mat, on the floor. He went to bed that night in the opulence of the regent's palace. Breakfast would have been mouldy crusts. Dinner was probably lobster, caviar, 
and the best wine from Pharaoh's cellar. He had not followed the normal promotion path of someone working in the Egyptian civil service. He went straight to the top. And from time to time, we see those sort of things happening. My dream, part of my dream, was to live and serve God's people in cities. So it always seemed a great irony that actually the first 10 years of my adult life was spent in a small provincial town a long way from any city. As I spent my time there and sought to serve faithfully, I embarked on a project with a few friends where we thought, let's try and start 50 churches in the Midlands in five years. Life is short and every now and then it's worth trying that sort of thing. So we thought we'd give it a go. And during that process, I was asked whether I would move from the town I was in to Birmingham to start a new church. Now at one level, this was right in line with one of my dreams, serve God in cities. But at another, I had had somebody else who'd left his job to work full-time with me in the church only two weeks previously, and it said this. He said, David, the reason I'm doing this is to work with you. I'm thinking, how can I get up and leave at this point in time? This guy will kill me. And so I was stuck, and I was, you know, somewhat in a, in a quandary. That next, the following, this was... I was asked about this on about the Wednesday or Thursday evening. I remember I got home that evening and um, I remember we were going upstairs, my wife and I, I was in front and she said, have you had a good day? And I said, we need to talk. And she said, oh, she said, are we moving? So I knew that there wasn't any problem there in terms of. So the next, the following Monday, I sat down with my leadership team and we had a full evening's agenda of decisions that needed making. And just before we started, I thought I'd just throw in, oh, by the way, so-and-so asked whether I would move to Birmingham. Isn't that a crazy idea? As I said those words, the guy opposite me looked at me. He said, that's what I think you should do. You should move to Birmingham. Why don't you move to Birmingham? At which point I can only describe it as the atmosphere in the room changed. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. It was like it was crackling with electricity. The agenda found its way to the floor. We never talked about anything else all evening, but by the end of the evening, every other member of my leadership team was saying, you need to really seriously consider moving to Birmingham. Ten years. Ten years where during which time I sometimes even forgot the dream that was in my heart, and then in three or four days, it had all changed, and we were on our way. Sometimes it works in that sort of way. Joseph, 13 years in prison, and then he's standing before Pharaoh, and things are going to work out from there. Victor Hugo, the author of Les Mis, says this. He wrote, like the trampling of a mighty army is the force of an idea whose time has come. And some of you have got ideas in your hearts at the moment, and their time has not come. And if you were to fess up to them, you'd be nervous that people would think you're simply mad. You keep them and you keep them alive. Mighty, or like the trampling of a mighty army, is an idea whose time has come. And this whole thing, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks' time, but Paul talks about the fact that Abraham inherited his promises or his dreams by faith and patience. Patience is being prepared to keep believing over a long period of time. Faith is keeping it alive.
through faith and patience. So keep those, I think, keep those things alive. Don't go giving up on them if you know or you suspect that maybe they've been put there by somebody other than yourself. Third thing we learn from this is that the fulfillment of these dreams is not always what we're expecting. So you may have dreams in your heart, but the way that God might work them out might surprise you. Joseph's dream, my mum and dad and my brothers are all going to bow down to me. So he's coming out of prison now. Now, if that's going to happen, where should he be? He should be back where they are. Pharaoh is saying, you're going to stay here. So if Joseph's thinking about his dreams, he's thinking, this is all going wrong. I'm not getting back to my family. Now, what turns out, what happens in the end is God brings the family to him. All comes together, but he has no way of knowing that now. So there are times where he starts to fulfill dreams in your hearts, but it doesn't look as you've imagined it, and it's easy to miss them as a result. Since my late teens, I've prayed for this country that there may be a spiritual renaissance. That spiritual things, and in particular, person of Jesus Christ may take much greater role in people's lives and attentions. And I've known that for that to happen, people need to pray. And I'd always thought that that would be people, maybe some of my friends and others praying. And then a few years ago, I got invited to speak at the largest all-night gathering in Europe. It happens twice a year. And it's at the Excel Conference Center, out in the East End. And it's an all-night prayer meeting. There are essentially 40,000 Nigerian, or Nigerian heritage men and women, who gather together to pray. And when I went and stood on the stage, and actually if you go and stand at the back, the stage is just a glow of light. You can't make it out. It goes back so far. But as I stood on the stage, I said to the men and women who were gathered there to spend their night in prayer, I said, I said to them, I have prayed for many years that many people in this nation would pray, but I had no idea that it would be by people coming from overseas and coming to this nation and filling the largest conference center in order to do so. He fulfills our dreams sometimes, but he doesn't do it in the way we expect. And so we have to stay open and flexible to see his way of putting things together. So, long periods of preparation and then quick change. What is it that we need to learn or how do we, uh, how do we handle ourselves in the periods of preparation? I'm looking out on a relatively young congregation tonight. My guess is that numbers of you would say, I feel like I'm in the preparation stage. Some of you may say, I feel like I'm metaphorically in the prison stage. I'm stuck. I hope you don't feel like that if this is you've just arrived for your first time at university. It will get better. <laughs> but nonetheless, some of you will just feel like I'm not where I want to be. I'm stuck or I'm being prepared. How do I handle myself? Well, there are three qualities in this passage that Joseph develops. And I want to suggest there are three qualities that we need to learn to develop as well. And those qualities are discernment, wisdom, and fullness of the Spirit. Here's what it says in verse 33. Joseph says, now let Pharaoh look for a, his first quality, discerning. Second quality, 
and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh asked them, verse 38, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Three qualities which you and I need to learn to develop as we're preparing discernment, wisdom, and the fullness of the Spirit. It was Disraeli, the 19th century British Prime Minister, who said the secret of success in life is for us to be ready when our time has come. The secret of success in life is to be ready when our time has come. In other words, it's not to waste the years of preparation or the years of prison. They can still be full of purpose. Discernment, wisdom, and fullness of the Spirit. What is, what is discernment? Well, in the Bible, it's an incredibly practical quality, and it's the ability to judge between right and wrong, between genuine and counterfeit. Joseph had this, you see. He worked out, when he went to Pharaoh's house, he, rec- he worked out that Pharaoh, uh, I'm sorry, Potiphar's house, he worked out Potiphar was a good man. There are some bosses who are intimidated by people who work well underneath them. And they hold into control and they don't let anything out. There are others who, if you work well and you show integrity, you get promoted. They're not intimidated. Potiphar was like the second. Joseph worked. The more he worked, the better he worked, the more trustworthy he was, the more responsibility he got. Joseph used discernment. It's important in the workplace to have discernment. He spotted this guy. He said, he's worth staying close to. There are some people in your workplaces and universities it's worth staying close to. But there was also, in that household, Potiphar's wife. She was danger. She was a seductress. And Joseph very quickly worked out she is the one to be avoided in this instance, in this story. And there are some people in the workplace to draw close to and there are others to avoid. Be polite, be nice, but don't do any more than that because they'll get you into trouble. A discernment is about working out which is which. Discernment is working out who your friends are going to be. Did you know that you become like the people you spend most of your time with? Think about it for a minute. Fast forward, think about the people you spend most of your time with now, then fast forward your life 10 years. Do you want to be like them? If not, change your friends you can do that you can't change your family I'm sorry you're lumped with them whether you like them or not but you can change and and you can't change your church people just look around that's your family like it or not but you can change your friends go and spend most of your time your majority of your time with people who will do you good I'm not saying all your time. You want to give to others. You want to help others up. But don't spend most of your time with people, you know, which puts you like crabs in a bucket. Have you ever seen crabs in a bucket? One of them's just getting up the side and then the others just pull them down again. If you're going to operate the sermon, you say, no, I'm going to avoid those sorts of people. There's one other way that the sermon, well, lots of other ways that the sermon works. But one way it's important that you switch the sermon on when you read Christian books, listen to Christian radio, or watch Christian television. Who knows? Not everything you read, listen to, and see on Christian television is good. Now, some of you are looking at me like, we don't ever go near any of that stuff anyway. <laughs> I think some of you are pretending. But anyway, here's some, 
let me just give you some pointers because whether it is, you know, I hope you read books and I hope you read Christian books from time to time, whatever you do with the other stuff. But let me just give you four questions to ask which will help you develop discernment for them. Okay? Question number one. Is what you're hearing in the Bible? Is it in the Bible? I, I realize some of you are like, oh, come on, David, give me something more profound than that. But actually, I really mean it. I remember being sick in my late teens for a protracted period of time, and somebody bought me a book. And I read the book, and I thought, oh, this is amazing. It was essentially the story of seven amazing experiences that this guy had had, ostensibly supernatural experiences. And I just thought, I, had no, I didn't know this. I, wow. And then my pastor actually came in to see me. And I, mentioned, I said, have you read this book? He said, yes, I have. He said, what did you think of it? I said, I thought it was amazing. He said, did you, he said, did you think the man put more store in his experiences or in the Bible? I thought, I missed it. There was very little about the Bible, lots about these experiences and how they taught him things that weren't in the Bible. This had got the other way around. It's easy to do. It's important, actually, when you hear the stories to ask, does that figure with the scriptures? Do you read the Bible? Good thing to read. You should do it. You should do it regularly. Second thing, does the Bible have the same amount of emphasis on this as this person is teaching? In other words, is this the main and the plain of Scripture? You find some people and they just go on and on and on about this one element of the Scriptures. It could be all sorts of different things, but it just becomes their thing. It's all they ever talk about. Now, if you read the Bible, it says all sorts of things, and it says there's some things that are very important. Prayer. The church, growing as a disciple, the cross, those are the main and the plain. Those are the things we should be filling our minds and thinking about. But there are some other things, yes, that's interesting. Learn a bit about that. Occasionally, it doesn't happen to me so much these days, but it used to. I'd, I'd have somebody and you'd see them coming from sort of halfway back in the hall and they'd be walking towards you at the end of the service. And you think, I know what conversation we're going to have before we've even had the conversation. Do you know why I knew that? Because that's the only thing they ever talked about. One aspect of the Christian life. And it's just all they ever talked about. And after a while, I think, have you got bored with Jesus? I mean, has this other thing now got you so excited, gives you some sort of adrenaline kick? Could we just talk about Jesus or maybe just talk about something normal? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Is it the main and the plain of Scripture? Because sometimes some of these things, it sounds great, but it essentially pulls you off the main things. Thirdly, does it glorify God or does it glorify man? Have you ever watched something or, or listened or whatever and just had this vague sense of dis-ease? Mm, I just can't quite put my finger on it. Is it, if you've been, had that experience, is it that it's drawing more attention to the teacher or the speaker than it is to Christ? Well, if so, change the channel. Fourth, does it strengthen the local church or draw energy from the local church? This community, 
and the scores of others like it across London is the main way in which God shares his love with the world. It's not the only way, but it's a main way. And therefore, my suggestion is if we're exercising discernment, we're asking, does this strengthen the local church or does it take away from it? There's some stuff on discernment. Grow in discernment as we wait or as we're in prison. How about wisdom? What's biblical wisdom? Well, biblical wisdom is, again, very practical. Let me give you an example of biblical wisdom. Two men are being chased by a bear. Bears are fast. Two guys are running. One of them stops. He takes his backpack off, gets out his running spikes, put his running spikes on, and he's about to take off when the other guy, who, of course, is now out in front, turns around and says, you'll never outrun that bear. The other guy shouted back, I don't need to. I just need to outrun you. Now that is biblical wisdom. It's very, very practical stuff. It's not ethereal or conceptual or philosophical. It's about how to live life well. It's about how to handle your money, how to thrive as a single person, how to do well in your degree or your work or whatever it is. How how do we grow in wisdom? Three suggestions. Number one, It says in the book of Proverbs that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord? It's essentially remembering, it's essentially remembering that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, he is aware. I learned this as sort of 12 years old. I used to play cricket, wonderful English game, on the the front of our house. Just bear with me. This is not a cricket illustration. Stay with me, people. We're, we're playing and um, my brother bowls the ball. I defend, it hits the edge of the bat and goes over into the next door neighbor's house. Not only into their house, but behind their big gate. Now, it's only about 9.30 in the morning and I've already been to them twice and knocked on their door and said, please, can I come and get my ball from your... You know, you can't do that too often. So I look around. There's no one in sight. I jump onto the wall. I jump onto the gate. I'm down on the other side. I have the ball in my hand. I throw the ball back, I'm back on the gate, I'm back on the wall, and I literally, as I land back in my garden, my father comes through the gate by the side, and he looks at me and he says, beware, he says, your sins will always find you out. (laughs) He was like that. (laughs) That is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is whether whatever you do in private... God knows about it. The integrity is actually about living an integrated life. It's about living the same life when you're by yourself as when you're with people. It's about being impressive on your own, not just in front of a crowd. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because when you learn that the Lord is present and watches you the whole time, you live differently as a result. That's how we start with wisdom. The second thing about wisdom is that actually it's all, there's just loads of it in the Bible. There's five books of the Bible called the wisdom books. Job, which teaches you how to suffer. Psalms, which teaches you how to worship. Proverbs, which teaches you how to act. Ecclesiastes, which teaches you how to enjoy life. And the Song of Songs, which teaches you how to make love. And that covers the whole gamut of living life. Read the wisdom books. Proverbs has 31 chapters. It's one for every day of the month. Read it 
and you will get wisdom. James says that if you want wisdom, you ask for it and you will get. And finally, there are times where people speak and they give words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. When my wife and I had been married a relatively short time, we had our first child, Edward, uh, and he was just this bundle of energy and we were in this tiny house, the smallest two-bedroom, sort of two-up, two-down house you can possibly imagine. And we're there with a friend of ours, and Ed is sort of bouncing off the walls. He's like, you know, there's not enough space in this house. And this friend of ours says, he says, uh, he says, if you want any more of those, meaning children, he says, if you want any more of those, you need to move to a bigger house. At which point, Philip and my wife laughed. And it wasn't the laugh of faith. We had bought in the 1980s at a point where the house prices were sky high and they'd done what all of you were hoping they will do again, which is they dropped a very large amount. And so we were in a huge amount of negative equity. We couldn't move. We were in massive debt. And Philippa's response to our friend's encouragement was, if you knew how much debt we're in right now, you would not be suggesting that we can move. Quick as a flash, he came back to us. He said, if you can trust for houses for those in need and the homeless, which we'd been able to do, and we had a number of them, He said, if you can trust for that, he said, you can trust for your own provision as well. And it was like a word of wisdom. It went into our hearts. And we thought, oh, that is right. And we started to pray. And within six months, we'd moved and cleared all the debt. It was an extraordinary thing. Listen for words of wisdom. Those moments where something is said and boom, you know that this is something which you need to take seriously. And finally, we're to learn to be full of God's spirit. In Scripture, people are not simply full of the Spirit to be in church, but they're full of the Spirit to do whatever they do in life. We're told that in Exodus that God's Spirit equips skilled workmen to do creative things. Other times, he equips warriors to fight battles, administrators to make good decisions. In other words, God will fill you with his Spirit in order to assist you in whatever you're doing for him. Let me just give you one example of this to finish with. Because my encouragement is that you open your heart to be full of the Spirit. Some years ago now, we had a lady who was part of this church. And she had a number of children at home with her. And her next door neighbor knocked on her door at about 8 o'clock one morning, really, really upset. She said, you've got to help me. My friend said, what's the matter? She said, I went out of my house this morning and I put my briefcase on the front door ledge. And she said, the briefcase had some very, very important professional documents in that couldn't be mislaid. And she said, I went to get my car that was parked down the road. And she said, I got my car, I drove it back to pick up my briefcase and looked and my briefcase wasn't there. She said, what do I do? Now, one of the remarkable things about my friend was she had lots of children at home but had learned to constantly pray and ask God to fill her with the Spirit. And my friend said, I stood on the doorstep and I looked up the road and there was a white van further up the road. And she said, I just knew that the briefcase was in the white van. So she started walking up the road towards it. She got to the van and there was a guy inside on his mobile phone. So she knocks on the window. When I tell this story to my family, I say to them, none of you are ever to do this. This is really dangerous. He winds down the window and she says, she says, um, I can't remember exactly. It was something like, have you got that bag? She said, oh, she said, I know you have got my friend's briefcase. Where is it? 
And he looked at her and he said, it's in the back of the van, but it wasn't me. She said, I don't care who it was. Get out of your van, get to the back of the van, get it open and give me that bag. And so he got out of the van, he came around, he opened it up, he got the bag out. He took it and he actually put it on the doorstep and he then ran. My friend rang the doorbell, by which point her next door neighbor was on the phone to the police. And she said, is this your bag? And the next door neighbor said, how on earth did you find that? And you'll not be surprised to know that as a result of that experience, my friend's next door neighbor took some very significant steps towards believing in Christ because she found that there was the Holy, that the Holy Spirit was still alive and working today and cared about justice and cared about people staying safe with things that were really important to them. Who knows how the Spirit of God might want to work in each of our lives? Who knows what little things or what big things he might want to do? But my encouragement to us all, and I've said an awful lot this evening, but my encouragement as we prepare and maybe feel like we're in prison is that we learn to develop discernment, wisdom, and the fullness of the Spirit so that when the time comes, for whatever it is for us, then we're ready and we're ready to serve Christ. Let's stand together, shall we? Maybe the band can come back. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.